Good morning, everybody. I'm really glad to be with you. I come, I come from Roanoke, Virginia, and I um, knew that there was this thing called West Virginia, too. But I'm glad to be in the mountains, the same mountains, right? Right, and so I'm really glad to be with you. Uh, the scripture reading for the message this morning is something you've already read and recited this morning. It's the Lord's Prayer. If you're wanting to look at that in the Bible as we talk about it together this morning, it's in Matthew chapter 6. It's on page 1504, 1504 in your pew Bible. But I'm going to ask you, rather than me read it to you, I'm going to ask you to recite it one more time with me. The Lord's Prayer. And I don't remember, do you have debtors or trespassers in your church? Debtors. Debtors, okay. So if you're a trespasser, you're off the hook. Okay? But if you're a debtor, you've got some trouble here. Um, so let's, let's just say these words of the Lord's Prayer to each other, not as a prayer, but as our scripture reading together. You remember that Jesus was asked, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he taught his disciples to pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now let's pray together. Lord Jesus, these are words that you taught your disciples thousands of years ago. And many of us recite these words every Sunday, some of us every day of our lives. Some of us have known them from childhood. And for this reason, we often wonder, is there something we're missing? And so we come to you today as we deal with these familiar words and ask you, please, to send Holy Spirit to us to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear you speak. And as you do that, we promise that we will give you the praise and we will give you the honor for it. Amen. You know, every once in a while, you have to sort of ask yourself the question, what's really important in my life? You ever do that? Now, the reality is, day by day, we're usually just sort of pushed around by what we've got to do. Got to go to the doctor, got to go to the grocery store, got to go to work, got to do this, got to do that. But every once in a while, it's a good thing. I don't care where you are in your faith, whether you follow Jesus or not. It's a good thing to stop for a moment and say, uh, what's really important to me about life? And this passage that we just recited together, the Lord's Prayer, it may seem odd to ask the question, what's important when it comes to that passage? Because that passage is about prayer. But let's face it, I don't care whether you ever pray. When something big happens in your life, something important happens in your life, even an atheist finds himself praying. And if you get really sick, you're going to find yourself praying. If your family's about to split up, you're going to pray. If your children are having trouble, you're going to find yourself praying. You may be the kind of person, even a Christian, who never prays except when you lay your head on the pillow and you go, oh, I forgot to pray today. Oh, Lord Jesus, please. That may be the way you pray. But let me tell you, when something big happens, something important to you happens, you start to pray. 
And so when Jesus tells his disciples in the Lord's Prayer how to pray, he's not just telling them what to say when you pray, he's also telling them what was important to him. And what he knew was to be important in his disciples' lives. And what was supposed to be important to every single person that ever follows Jesus. And when you think about the Lord's Prayer, I think most of us in this room, especially those of us who follow Christ, we, we can find what's important somewhere in that prayer. And usually, I've discovered, especially with American Christians, that what's most important to us, we can find in the bottom half of the Lord's Prayer. You know how it goes. Give us this day our daily bread, which basically means... Lord, please take care of my daily needs. Forgive us our debts, which means, oh, I'm sorry, I did it again. Please forgive me. Uh, lead us not into temptation, which basically means, please help me do better tomorrow than I did today. I mean, that's where most of us live, isn't it? Please take care of me. Please forgive me. Uh, please help me do better tomorrow. And if that's where your life is right now, if you can say, yeah, that's basically what's important to me, uh, way to go. You're way ahead of most of the world. Most of the world doesn't even have that going for them. Most of the world, the people that are right here in this town, most of them are just sort of bouncing from one thing to another, to another, to another, and they don't have any kind of priorities set in their lives, like the Lord's Prayer. So if, if you are concerned about God helping you out, God forgiving you, and God making you a better person tomorrow than you were today, that's great. But did you notice where those things are in the Lord's Prayer? The bottom half. And you can tell why they're important to us. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Can you see why they're important to us? They're all about us. But they are the second half of the Lord's Prayer, and I'm convinced that the really big picture that Jesus gave his disciples, the priority he gave to them and that he gives to us is really not found in the bottom half, as important as that is. The important matters of following Jesus, the important matters of living on this world, is in the top half of the Lord's Prayer. Now, that's the part we usually sort of mumble through so we can get down to something that means something to us. Give us this day our daily bread. But there's a lot there in that top half, and you know how it goes. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where the top priorities for Jesus can be found. And it's where the top priorities ought to be found for us, too. Now, when Jesus said those words to his disciples, he, he was calling on them to do some adjusting, some changing in the ways they thought about certain things, what they believed about certain things, how they felt about them. Uh, and the first thing that he called on them to adjust is what they believed about God. Our Father. Now, if you've been around Christianity much at all, you don't even have to go to church very often, you know that those words are precious to Christians. Our Father. Because this is what they say. Those two words, our Father, tell us something. 
that the one who made everything, I mean the one who made everything from the galaxies out there that we cannot even count to the tiny little nano world we cannot even see, the one that made all those things and everything in between and sustains them every single day, that same creator God can be your personal spiritual father. Our father. And that means he knows you by name. It means the things that you care about, he cares about. Your suffering, he knows about. Your joys, he knows about. Your complaints, he cares about them. Just like a good father would. But you know as well as I do that many times when we hear our father, that God is our father, he's our spiritual father, um, an image seems to come to our minds. And let me, let me tell you what that image is. It's... it's well, that God is like a sweet old granddaddy sitting up in heaven, rocking on his rocking chair like this, looking down on the earth, and he says to himself as he wrings his hands, oh, I wish my children on the earth would just pay a little more attention to me. I'm doing everything I can to make their lives better, and I exist to make them happy, and I am like their sweet granddaddy, our father. That's the way most Americans think. When they think about God, God's got this long white beard, sweet old granddaddy up in heaven. Now, I know what a sweet granddaddy is. I'm the sweetest of them all. I've got three grandchildren who absolutely adore me, and I absolutely adore them too, but I know exactly why they like me so much. I know exactly why. I'm no fool. I know exactly why. It's because when they were little, every time I saw them, I would hug them real big and whisper in their ear, I love you so much. And then the next thing I would say to them every single time was this. Do you want to go to Toys R Us now? <laughs> and I'd take them and I'd buy them whatever they wanted. If they wanted one of them, I'd get them two. If they wanted two, I'd get them three. More's better, kids. Come on. And so when I walk in the room, my three grandchildren, now who's one, the oldest of which is now 18 years old, they just salivate like Pavlov's dogs. Pops is here. <laughs> Well, you know, that's what most people, especially in our country, thinks that Christianity means when they say God is our Father. That He's like a sweet granddaddy who exists to make us happy. Well, I have some good news for you. That's not what Jesus meant. Jesus has something much more profound than that in mind when He said, pray this way, our Father. And we get the first clue of that by the fact that He says, don't just pray our Father, but pray, our Father, who art in heaven. And every single time you look in the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, the picture of heaven is the same. Heaven is not God's living room where he sits on a rocking chair. Heaven is the throne room of God. It's where God sits on a throne, where blinding light radiates from him where a river of fire pours out from beneath his feet, where these creatures are surrounding him saying, holy, 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 hallowed be thy name. That's what that's talking about. You see, when Jesus says, pray our Father in heaven, what he's reminding his disciples of is that God is the king who rules from heaven. Holy be his name. In fact, it might surprise you to know this, but in the days of the Bible both in Israel and outside of Israel, in the Old Testament days and in the New Testament days, 
It was very common for people to call their human kings their fathers. So when Jesus said, God is our father, this is what he's saying. Our royal father, enthroned in heaven, may your name be kept holy. Our king father. That's where the important things begin. Desiring the honor of our great king in heaven. And why did Jesus talk this way? It's because he knew his Bible. He knew that the number one way that the Bible describes God to us is that God is our king. And that's a big problem for us because we don't have a clue of what it means to live under a king. Now, I know I'm in West Virginia, but you know, at one point you were Virginians. Did you know that? Hmm, Virginia. I like Virginia, and what I like best about Virginia is our flag. Do you remember what that looks like? Most people know this much. It's got this nice, solid blue satin background, and in the middle of it is a circle. You probably know that much about your neighbors down there. But let me tell you what's inside that circle, because it tells you what it means to be a Virginian, and it tells you what it means to be an American. Inside that circle is a picture. It's a picture of a man lying on his back, dead on the ground. It's a great picture, huh? And next to him is a crown that's fallen off of his head. If you don't believe me, pull it up on your phone right now. Google it on your phone. And if you find it, you're going to Google it on your phone? Your phone's at home? Good job. Good job. Well, I'll give it to the preacher here. He can confirm it later. Okay, it's a picture of a man lying dead on his back and a crown has fallen off of his head. He's a king, a dead king. And standing over that dead king is a woman who has a spear in her hand at her foot on the chest of that dead king. And written around the edge of that circle are these words in Latin, sic semper tyrannis, thus, always, to tyrants. You got the message? We will not have a king in the state of Virginia. It's plain and simple. And if anybody tries to become a king in Virginia, we know exactly what to do. We send our women after them. <laughs> and they take care of it. Now, I know that Virginians are not the only people that feel that way. West Virginians feel that way, too. We are not going to have a king rule over us. We're Americans. We don't have that. It's in our blood. It's in our DNA. Why? I can tell you why. It's because human kings are very inconvenient to have around. I mean, they have weird ideas. Like, their glory is more important than yours. Their happiness is more important than yours. Their wealth is more important than yours. Their freedom is more important than yours. And they expect you to be happy to make them greater. In fact, they expect you to be happy to die for them. When you've got people like that around you, it's very inconvenient. You don't get to live your life the way you want to live it anymore. You have to ask yourself, well, what does the king want? And when the king wants something, it's usually not in your favor. It's not to make you happy. It's to make him more glorious. Kings are inconvenient. And I think that tells us something about our Christian faith. 
You ready for it? Here it comes. Here's the punchline. If your Christian faith has become convenient to you, and by that I mean, you know, you go to church on Sunday, you do things like Christians do, it kind of fits nicely with you. You go to church, you hear sermons, and you really don't feel like you need to change anything. You certainly don't need to be radical, and you, I'm not going to be inconvenienced, that's for sure. If your Christianity has become convenient for you, then maybe, just maybe, maybe, you still don't know what it means to say that God is your king. Because when God is your king, it's not convenient. Don't you know that he gives you every breath you take? Don't you know he's given you every penny that's in your pocket? Don't you know he's the one that keeps your heart beating and keeps those neurosynapses in your brain firing? I know they go slower now, but they're still going. And don't you know he's the one doing that? Don't you know, Christian, that he bought you with the price of his own son's blood? You do not belong to you anymore. You belong to him, lock, stock, and barrel. And that's not convenient. So guess what's going to happen? Jesus is going to ask you to do something that's not easy and that's not convenient anymore. Okay, so I think Jesus is calling his disciples to do some changing. God's not your sweet granddaddy. He's your king. But he called on his disciples to change their attitudes towards something else too. And it's going to sound weird, but let me go ahead and say it. In that top half of the Lord's Prayer, top priority, God is your king. But the second priority is this. What Jesus taught his disciples to change in what they believed about living on this planet called Earth. Now, I know that sounds strange, but you know it's true. Listen to what he said again. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. You see, I told you he's talking about God as king. Our Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on Earth as it is in heaven. You see how he's calling on them to change what they think about the Earth? about this thing we call human life that goes by like the snap of your finger, doesn't it? If you're as old as me or older, you know how fast it goes by. What does Jesus say about life on this planet? Well, the first thing we see is he says this, may your kingdom come. And we go, okay, when the kingdom comes. Now, I grew up with a grandmother that used that expression all the time. She'd always say, when the kingdom comes. Uh, but let me tell you when she would say it. Every time we and the other grandchildren would go into the kitchen, maybe after Thanksgiving or something like that, we'd, we'd go in there and say, hey, Mama, can we have some more ice cream? And she'd say, well, sure, when the kingdom comes. <laughs> Which meant, no, get out of here, you're bothering me. So I learned around four years old that when the kingdom comes meant, no, never, uh, forget it. Just get out of here, okay? So it's one of those Christian expressions, right? When the kingdom comes. 
that we, we use, but we're not real sure what it means. So what does Jesus say? Well, he tells us right away what it means. May your kingdom come. What's that mean, Jesus? May your will be done. Okay, I can get that. I mean, what kind of king would God be if his will's not being done? All right, I got that much. But Jesus, where do you want that will of God to be done? And Jesus' answer was this, on earth, as it is in heaven. And by saying that, what Jesus has done is he's basically taken our Christianity and he's turned it upside down. Because if you and I had written that prayer, we would have said something like this, May your kingdom come, may your will be done in heaven, because that's where we're going to spend eternity, and we really want it nice up there. But that's not what Jesus said. I want you to notice something. Heaven is not the destiny of God's will being done, his kingdom. That's not the destiny. Heaven is the standard. And earth is the destiny. Now, I'm, the reason I say it's turning us upside down here is because all of us kind of operate with this concept that if we're really spiritual people, if we really love Jesus, if we really are devoted to him, then our hearts and our minds and our desires are not going to have anything to do with this world. Our hearts and our minds and our desires are all going to be about heaven. And we kind of feel guilty, you know, when we do things that are related to the world around us. And we certainly think it's unimportant that what we really ought to be trying to do is to make sure things are right up there because that's what we want to get. But the reality is this. Jesus came to this earth to do something much more spectacular than to take you for a while up into heaven. Now, don't misunderstand me. When you pass away, if you are in Christ, you're going to go to heaven, and it's going to be great. But that's not all Jesus came to do. Jesus came to do something much greater than that. You say, really? Well, it could be be what could be better than that? A lot of us think that when we die, what's going to happen is we're going to believe in Jesus, and we're going to make it up into heaven, and... And as we walk through the gate, Peter's going to say, now wait just a minute, i got something for you. Oh, great, great, I'm in heaven now, I'm going to get something from Peter. And Peter's going to walk over to the closet, and he's going to pull out a big golden harp, he's going to hand it to you. And he's going to say, here now, here's your harp, and right over there, right over there, that's where you're going to sit in the choir. You're going to play that harp now, and you're going to sing in that choir forever, and forever, and forever, and forever. You ever been in the choir? You can put up with it for a few hours, but forever is a lot longer than a few hours. But that's the way most people think eternity is going to be spent. It's as if we're going to be overdosed on celestial Prozac so that we think that that's bliss. So let me remind you of what the Bible actually says. It says that Jesus did not come to this earth so you'd get a golden heart. Jesus did not die, so you float off to heaven one day. Jesus did not resurrect from the dead. He did not ascend into heaven, and he's not coming back, 
So you will spend eternity as some spirit floating in the clouds somewhere. Why did Jesus do all those things? Why did he live? Why did he die? Why did he resurrect? Why is he coming back one day? Because one day, Jesus is going to return and make the whole creation new. On that day, you said it this morning in the Apostles' Creed, there will be the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. And you and I will be resurrected into a world that belongs to Jesus. And he will look at that world and he'll be happy with it. And he'll look back at you and he'll say, it all belongs to me. And because you trusted in me, it all now belongs to you too. Even in our day, when there's war threatening us, where disease is threatening the world, where hardship is everywhere and violence is covering the face of the earth, even now we get glimpses of what this world could actually be, don't we? We wake up in the morning and see that sunrise, and it takes your breath away, and you go, man, this is a beautiful world we have. You know, it's those times like when you had your first child. The first time you ever fell in love. Those moments in life, even in a sinful, dark world, that we see the joy of being God's creature living in God's world. Now imagine this world made new, where there is no violence, there is no sin, there is no disease, there is no disappointment. There is not one bit of shame for anything you have ever done, even all those things your husband and wife don't know about. There's no more shame. No more shame. A world that is so wonderful that it's lit up with the glory of God. That is why Jesus came. And as we wait for him... What are we to do with our lives? Something very inconvenient. Remember, he's your king. We are to join with him and do all we can not to live private, safe, convenient lives, but everything we can do in the power of his Holy Spirit to turn the earth into the kingdom of God. Now, you might say to yourself, look, I'm in this little ARP church over here, and we've got, we've got a big crowd here today, don't we? We've got 50 people in here. What can we possibly do to turn the earth into the kingdom of God? Don't forget, when Jesus was here, and he said these words to his disciples, get out there and turn the world into my kingdom, don't forget how many there were with him. And they stood before a world that absolutely knew nothing about him and hated everything that was good. And he said to them, Look, this is your number one priority. God is your king. Honor him with everything you have. And the second priority is for you to devote your life to turning the entire earth into the kingdom of God. So what can you do right here in West Virginia, you can do what those disciples did. Your life can be that significant. Your life can be that transformative. Your life can be that redemptive. 
as you give your faith away to your neighbors, as you give your faith away to your children and your grandchildren, when you don't give up on reaching out to people around you and showing kindness to them when they don't shine kindness to you, when you let people know what's happening in your church and in your life because of Jesus, those words can transform this place where you live. And those words and those efforts by you can turn this part of the earth into the kingdom of God. It's the word that Jesus gives us today. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we delight in you. We thank you that you like to turn our religion on top, upside down. We delight in you that you do not allow us to live convenient, safe, easy lives, but that you call us to serve our Father as our King, and that you call us to turn the world into your kingdom. Give us the conviction and the will by your Holy Spirit's power to serve you in these ways. And as you do, we will honor you and praise you for it. Amen.